A quick note to say that Postscript Media, the company I co-founded and that co-produces this podcast, is now Latitude Media. And our news site is live. Go to latitudemedia.com to see what trends we're covering at the frontiers of clean energy and climate tech. And just in case there's any confusion, Canary Media and Latitude Media are partners on the Carbon Copy and on Catalysts with Shale Khan. These pods will continue their regularly scheduled programming. Also, this is the last time I'm going to be dropping into your feed to remind you about Transition AI New York. It's this conference and workshop on artificial intelligence and energy brought to you by our team at Latitude Media. And it's happening on Thursday, October 19th in Manhattan. If you're hearing this before the 19th, come join us. We've got workshops, panels, data dives, and you can network with experts from Microsoft, Meta, Oracle, GE Digital, Amazon, National Grid, Avant Grid, Southern Company, and so many more. Get your ticket at transition-ai.com. Use the promo code PSPODS10 at checkout. And now on to the show. A co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. Eric Westhoff is the editorial director at Canary Media. He built his energy reporting career covering the early wave of venture investing in clean tech starting in the mid-2000s. He was known for his skepticism of the Silicon Valley herd mentality and the skeleton heads he would place at the top of company obituaries. And earlier this month, Eric explored the evolved state of climate investing at Canary Media's live event in Berkeley. You and I and many of the investors that we interviewed have lived through whatever you want to call it, clean tech 1.0 or the previous clean tech bubble. And uh, I found myself on stage with three great investors that brought out some new and interesting points from the new world of venture capital in the era of the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, there are a lot of quarterly ups and downs in venture dollars deployed across the climate tech category, but the trend is up. More than 200 new climate investment funds have been created since 2021, with $121 billion under management. That's according to data from CTVC. It's VC investing in this epical era of government backing. And so it's a much different VC flavor. And this government backing, this comprehensive green industrial strategy, it's opening up new investment categories and commercial opportunities in deep decarbonization. It's not the intense science-based Department of Energy of Ernest Moniz or Stephen Chu. The DOE is being helmed by business people and industrialists like Jigger Shah, like David Crane, like Elaine Shea, and many, many others. And so we've gone away from a DOE intent on scientific research and much more focused on bringing commercial projects and financing commercial projects. What does this all amount to when we talk about the new era of venture capital and climate tech? Those of us who have lived through a, a bubble can, might see certain parallels this time. And this is certainly not your grandmother's venture capital bubble. It's a very different situation. The societal impetus for acknowledging climate change, the bank and financial segments focus on making money in climate change, and government's policy alignment with mitigating climate change all have created a, a very different spot for humanity that will rhyme, but it won't look exactly like our previous bubble experience. 
This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, Eric Wessoff brings us a conversation with three prominent investors, two VCs and one senior official at the Department of Energy, who are deploying tens of billions of dollars across climate tech. They'll grapple with what sectors are most promising and what are the pathways to commercial success. This episode is brought to you by SPAN, a smart electrical panel that helps homeowners save on their energy bills. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy-efficient upgrades to your home like a heat pump? Wired recommends SPAN Panel as a borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel, almost essential if you have a backup battery. Interested in having a SPAN panel installed in your home? Well, visit span.io to learn more. That's S-P-A-N to learn more. This episode is also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is a leading provider of intelligent, integrated solar tracker and software solutions used in solar projects around the world. With an operating fleet in over 30 countries, NextTracker leads the industry with solar tracker technologies that increase energy production while reducing costs for significant plant ROI. And if your solar project is operating in a hail-prone region, check out NextTracker's new offering, NX Horizon Hail Pro. Go to nexttracker.com. Well, this was originally about venture capital investing in the era of the IRA. Um, We're fortunate enough to have uh, Elaine Shea from the DOE, and the DOE and her role at the DOE is part of this chain of innovation, funding, and commercialization. And I think commercialization is what we're going to talk about here to a great extent. And Elaine's presence here was iffy because... Uh, she works for the U.S. government, and the U.S. government was, whether it would be operating, was iffy, but we can thank the former Speaker of the House, Kevin <laughs> McCarthy, for that. So thank you, Kevin McCarthy. Parting gifts. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're talking about the IRA, and I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to put it in perspective. Um, it's quotidian to us. We, we use the word every day. We cover it every day. But it's terribly named. It, but things like the New Deal, that's a good name, that was $324 billion of adjusted to today. The LBJ's Great Society, another good name, um, was to cost $520 billion. And Barack's, uh, Barack Obama's ARRA, not a good name, uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, Act um, was almost a billion dollars. The IRA, along with the bipartisan homina homina investment <laughs> law, um, is a total of three point, uh, again, who, uh, we need a naming department within the DOE. Um, that's $3.5 trillion. So the IRA, thank you very much, thank you. Um, the, 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 it dwarfs the New Deal, it dwarfs LBJ's Great Society, and a colleague said, we have to start making as much noise about what we're doing in, at, here as the oil and gas companies make a, about what they're doing. So, did that make, did that make sense? Go ahead. Can I just add one factoid to what you just said? So, it does, $3.5 trillion is is a huge accomplishment, and we're so grateful for it. But it it is dwarfed by the seven seven trillion dollars 
in 2022 that the oil and gas industry has in subsidies. So we still have a long ways to go. The woman. Um, <laughs> Which one? The <laughs> one who was speaking. The that, lady that red, woman. I think. That woman over there. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to. They, they all, that, that one over there. Um, they all have, all, all of these women uh, have <laughs> binders. Silent, silent letters in their name. That's what they have in common. <laughs> Nancy Fund is a leading and pioneer player in impact investing. I'm, I, I, ref, I refuse to rattle off all of her qualifications because they make me regret my misspent life. <laughs> um, but she's on the boards or sponsors the boards of the Farmers Business Network. That's Mal Desh, Deshpande, right? Yeah, that was one of the founders. Yeah. Um, Andela, the Muse, Zola Electric, who's doing uh, energy, clean energy storage and solar in the the developing world. Indeed. Um, more importantly, Bellwether Coffee, <laughs> she's an investor in. She's also an right investor in, in a company called Rain, another company called Wind. <laughs> and I, I'm sure there's another in that. Uh, air? Yeah, she's investing in, in air. Um, I'm sorry, I, this, is just, this is just the first paragraph of her, 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 her bio. Um, I'll stop there. She's, she's also the chapter chair of the Silicon Valley Women Corporate Directors Foundation, amongst many, many, many other accolades, and she's been doing this for a while, and she's an OG in the investment world. Uh, M Mona, do the silent last name for me. And Nagar would That's be right. the, with the uh, silent L, but otherwise El Nagar is fine. Okay, well, it's not really silent. Partner at, she's a partner at Velo Ventures, which is a mission-driven venture capital firm. Did I mention that you're the uh, managing director of um, DBL Ventures? I, I didn't, didn't mention that. Um, and Velo invests in uh, climate change, the circular economy, and empowered people. Uh, on her bio, she says she's the proud, nerdy graduate of the university where fun goes to die. <laughs> what university? The University of Chicago. <laughs> um, and her firm is invested in Boston Materials, Modern Hydrogen, Roadrunner Recycling, and a number of other companies. Um, and on the end over there is Elaine Shea. She's a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for Infrastructure. That's Mr. David Crane. Uh, that's a Senate-approved position. Um, and before that, she was the CMO at Third Derivative, which uh, is a program under Rocky Mountain Institute. And um, Canary Media is an independent affiliate of Rocky Mountain Institute, in full disclosure. Um, and she also worked at Generate Capital before that and Green Biz Group, and before that, DNV. Um, and she's going to be able to tell us about the enormous amounts of money that the DOE is deploying in order to leverage private funds. Um, she mentioned to me that we, we have to deploy $10 trillion by yep. 2050 in order to do decarbonization, to, to, to zero, to re net zero. To reach, right, so the president... zero. Yes, the, so the president's goals are to be carbon-free electricity by 2035 and net zero economy by 2050 in order to achieve the net zero economy by 2050 goal. Um, you need roughly $10 trillion um, by 2050 in terms of clean energy capital formation. 
So that's private sector investment, which is roughly over $300 billion per year of private sector investment that we need. So we have a lot to do. And Elaine will be speaking not as a private citizen today, but as a representative That's of the right. DOE, and so there are things we can't ask her as a journalist. Like, what's your favorite technology? She can't really say that, right? You can't, you can't really say that, right? I love them all. Okay, there you yeah. can see. <laughs> so you can't really ask her that question. All right. So some, most of us have lived through a renewable energy bubble over the last 10 years, and we've watched huge amounts of venture capital go in, and some successes, but not entirely successful. Here we're in a much better funded, much more incentivized, much more societally aligned situation. You've lived, you lived through 2008 to 2012, and you saw that. Um, how is this different? Yeah. That's the question. How is, how is, how, why is this not, are we going to see a lot of better places or, um, and the many interesting companies that, that appeared in that previous bubble? I imagine we will, but how is this different? Well, it's really different. And, and uh, I just want to say thank you to Eric and the Canary Media team for bringing us together tonight. And Eric is the OG of, of uh, climate journalism. I mean, he's been at this. Thank you. Stop by and ask one of my, the editors at, at Canary if that's really true. Okay. Well, I think from one OG to another, I, I've I've uh, worked you. with you for Aww. long and, can, and, and we'll, we'll stand by that statement. Um, I'm also uh, was really um, fortunate to invest in Next Tracker many years ago and, and just so grateful for your leadership and, and what, what Next Tracker gets and what a few uh, version 1.0 solar companies got and wind was that policy matters, that advocacy matters, that you, you need to develop a movement, not just a a company, and that really set apart the winners from the losers. Uh, there were so many great technologies for thin film, solar, and and uh, on and on, and they just died. Uh, it, it's not just a technology game, and this is not like investing in SaaS or. Um, you know, a, a traditional tech profile. You have to weave your technology into a broader uh, framework that really matters. And that means engaging across policy, technology, investment, and advocacy. And really, um, that is what's different this time, is I think people get that. They, they've seen what worked and what, what didn't. It, obviously, the, the existence of the IRA is, is, a, is an exclamation point to how policy matters. Um, I, I do think that there is a risk of, you know, we still have the risks of nimbyism, of, of um, the, the politicization of this sector, which brought us a lot of headaches uh, back in that 2010 to 12 timeframe. Um, but I think there's a savvier group here. We have more funds. We, we have the, um, the best and the brightest really coming into this field uh, that 
and at in numbers and of course in this in this industry scale matters because that's how you drive down the cost so we've seen that with solar we've seen it with wind we're seeing it with batteries um, and and so that that really is is helped by the advent of policy money and also the all of the firms that are being started so I think it's it, it's not a recipe for complete success because there are always going to be failures, but we're in so much better shape than we were 15 years ago. Great. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that I would add um, is that what's perhaps different than then is I think there's more money available for companies at later stages than there used to be before. That sort of growth sector for particularly climate investing wasn't as established in sort of climate tech 1.0. And so companies were sort of hitting that point of trying to scale or, you know, what have you, and not yet being ready for the sort of really big check writers. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot, you know, 80% of the money that was raised for climate over the past few years has gone into growth investing, private equity, you know, the kind of later stage. And that's really quite helpful as well. Okay. Okay. I'm going to add too. That's okay with you. Of course. Um, so in 2011, we all may recall the Sunshot Initiative. So, you know, that from the Department of Energy standpoint, uh, we created the Sunshot Initiative in order to increase um, the use of solar PV goods and services by decreasing its cost. Which now that, is to get it to a dollar per, per watt, right? That's right, that was, that's yeah. right. And so it, it, in, what happened was then we became much more competitive from a solar energy market and supply chain standpoint. It also enhanced our R&D um, uh, opportunities um, as related to the research we were doing related to solar uh, energy alternatives as well. So, I mean, what we're trying to do at the DOE now is to build upon those learnings, right? There's a lot that happened in that era um, that we certainly found successful. And so, you know, there are obviously learnings that we don't want to make mistakes around as well, but at the same time, there are these new clean energy-driven markets that we can learn from, that we that we can build upon in terms of the learnings from the past and um, really drive and maximize more renewables onto the grid and strengthen our supply chains, et cetera. So the DOE is not the same DOE of 2010 as well, right? It's not no. grandpa scientist, PhD, Ernest right. Moniz and Stephen Chu. It's, it's, com, it's commercializing. Is this going live on the internet? <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's staffed with a, a really different cohort of folks. So Elaine, tell us about the new, the new DOE. Yeah, that's right. So um, in late 2021, the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed also known as the IIJA, BIL, we call it Bill and IRA, you know, so Bipartisan Infrastructure Law Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but with the standing up of these unprecedented laws, um, there was a, you know, inherent acknowledgement by Congress to uh, get more commercialization expertise into DOE. So DOE has traditionally had these world-class laboratories, incredible technical expertise, science and innovation, um, but there really wasn't a lot of uh, private sector expertise or understanding of how markets actually worked to really advance those clean energy technologies to get to scale, right? So with the restructuring through the bipartisan infrastructure law, um, the office of the Undersecretary for Infrastructure uh, was set up. And that 
uh, is essentially the arm of the Department of Energy that is focused on commercialization. So demonstrations and deployment, really getting these things out the door and creating, driving more green commodities. We need to do it very quickly. And so they brought in a lot of leaders from the private sector, including Jigar Shah, from, who's the director of our loan programs office. That is one of the program offices under the Office of Infrastructure. And there are many more new ones. So the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations, the Grid Deployment Office, the Manufacturing and Energy Supply Chains Office, and even some for communities, state and community energy programs, Indian Energy, you know, all those kinds of really great program offices that are deploying Bill and IRA funding, as well as a lot of other resources as related to commercialization. And David Crane, who is the former CEO of Energy, is our first undersecretary for infrastructure. So I'm in that office. And so we're really excited that we have so much market expertise now at the DOE. All right. I'm, just let me follow up a little bit. It's about commercialization. It's no longer about, it's not as much about labs. It's about getting, deploying and commercialization. It's about both, but yeah. But and to that effort, the DOE with the LPO and your group of, in infrastructure is published a number of reports that you call commercial liftoff reports. And you're not a sponsor, so, but I'm gonna say something nice here, okay? I, there's, I, in other words, this is, uh, this is purely altruistic. Um, is this live streamed? <laughs> anyway, they've authored half a dozen great reports on getting technologies like advanced nuclear, carbon management, hydrogen, VPPs, there's some... Industrial other. decarbonization, yeah, yeah advanced yeah. nuclear. Yeah. And I would recommend that you take a look at them because they're sober analysis of how to get these things commercialized, how to get from first of a kind to many of a kind. How, what, what do you need from a regulatory standpoint, from a workforce standpoint? And I think this is a new era in the way the DOE works. That's right. We spoke to hundreds and hundreds of private sector stakeholders that represent buyers, developers, investors, um, to really understand what are the commercial adoption pathways for a lot of these, all of these critical sectors that need market liftoff in order to get to net zero by 2050. And so we publish these reports. They're living documents. You could go to liftoff.energy.gov. They're free downloads. Check it out. Um, and they are critical signposts for where there should be investments because that's the pathway that we're seeing to lifting off all of these clean energy demonstrations and uh, obviously getting them to scale and also de-risking the markets, frankly, in order to get that bankable offtake. I think that reports, and we write reports all the time, and, and um, it, it's an important part of what, what moves this field forward is to, is to bring, sort of educate people away from the traditional oil and gas narrative. But in terms of starting the innovation process, it's really about the team. The report is helpful, but it, it doesn't really um, predict what will be successful. And so I think one of the things that's so important in, in gatherings like this and in the um, the, the investment process is to make sure that we are finding the, the people that have the talent to go, you know, up against the fossil industry or the petrochemical, the 
the pesticide industry, whatever, what this reinvent steel, reinvent mining, uh, those are really taking on odds that are are crushing I mean, in, in terms of the, the significance. So yes, the reports su are super helpful, but it doesn't really predict what's successful. So well, let's talk about teams and people a little bit. Um, you invested in Next Tracker, and Dan Shuar is the CEO, and he's a bit of a force of nature in this industry. He has, has had a golden touch with some of his investments, which you've been involved in before, the Power, Power Light, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking for more Dan Shugars and more Rafi, Rafi Garabedians, who, who is uh, a CEO at Electric Hydrogen. Folks who have... Well, I would argue that Electric Hydrogen has not proven itself. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Dan. Um, well, there's, there's, there's Elon Musk, there's, there's uh, the Rive brothers, there's Lynn Jurek. I mean, yep. there's like yep. a whole group of, of leaders that got us to where we are so today. So as a venture capital firm, you have, a, you have certain things you can do. You can invest in a company and you can help staff that company. That's one of the roles that a VC can provide is, is providing a network of, of of personnel that you might be able to um, recruit from. Um, how hard is that these days, finding people from outside? I, I would imagine it's, it's gotten easier, but how hard is it bringing in people into clean tech? What do they, do they need? Do you need domain experience or you just need uh, someone who can bend gravity? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of the above. I mean, you need that you know, that leader that has the ability to, to, to inspire and is mission-oriented, is a workaholic, is, is really going to not let, is going to take it for the team and then some, um, and has the, the smarts around the technology, around the policy, around the, the finance, uh, is able to scale. I mean, it has to be a, a very, very... Um, talented, inspirational leader, and then you build around that. Um, and the good news, as you point out, is that people are coming into this field from you know, the tech sector, from life sciences, from finance, uh, because they want to make a difference. So we've, we have such a powerful um, array of talent. It's, it's just that there is still, as I pointed out, there's a heavily subsidized incumbent industry, and it's not just oil and gas, it's all of the, the industries from the 20th century that have a lot of uh, power. And, and it's not, it, it isn't just reading a report to, to confound that, that power. Yeah. The other thing I would add to your list, which I completely agree with what you said, um, is that I think what we've seen a lot is some very smart, you know, former Google engineers who can write an amazing piece of software, um, but they're, you know, then trying to completely change the way utilities work. But not one member of the team has ever worked in a utility, understands what that's about, under, has ever sold to utility, et cetera. And, you know, making sure that we're marrying those, you know, that kind of ability to build a piece of, write a piece of software code, but then also, you know, real true understanding um, of what the auto industry needs or whatever it is. You said these are all like huge industries that they're trying to change, um, but kind of coming in it from the outside and saying, I'm smarter than you. 
Um, I'm going to tell you how to do your business that you've been doing for eons. Um, you know, it doesn't always land well. A quick pause here to talk about our supporters of this show. The Carbon Copy is brought to you by SPAN, makers of the award-winning SPAN panel, a smart electrical panel that helps homeowners save on their energy bills. SPAN has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world, backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar, and battery storage, or a heat pump to your home? Wired Magazine recommends Span Panel as a borderline genius app control electrical panel. Span was recently named top five in Forbes' 2023 list of America's best startup employers. If you're interested in advancing your career at a premier climate tech company or getting a Span Panel installed in your home or maybe both, visit span.io to learn more. We're also brought to you by Next Tracker. Sudden hailstorms, like those in the U.S. Hail Alley, as well as in parts of Canada and Australia, are a massive threat to utility-scale solar projects. But owners and operators can be prepared by choosing the right solar tracker for the job. NextTracker's latest offering, NX Horizon Hail Pro, builds on the company's extensive experience in hail-prone regions. It offers hardware upgrades, expanded software tools, and support services specifically tailored for hail, including the ability to stow modules at positions up to 75 degrees. And even when the grid goes down, the system still works thanks to its battery-powered design of each independent tracker row. To learn more, visit nexttracker.com. Elaine, you talked, we talked a little bit about demand-side support. And yep. Riff on that a little bit. Tell me about how <laughs> the, the, the DOE is... A little bit. Um, <laughs> so... Oh, nice! <laughs> wow! <laughs> Demand side blue. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, I was talking about de-risking markets, right? So, um, like, for example, let's give an example. So, clean hydrogen. Uh, we recently came out with, um, you know, a competitive grant for hydrogen hubs. We have not yet announced the selection of those, and I'm not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that's really important, what we've heard from investors, obviously, is that there's not bankable offtake. Obviously, there's not a mature enough market to be able to really, you know, get some traction um, if, you know— it, we really need it to lift off quickly, right? We need these hydrogen hubs to become replicable. And so we really need to drive more demand-side support. And so we um, took, of the 10 billion that was allocated for hydrogen hubs, we took up to a billion um, to issue an RFP related to getting demand-side support from, you know, partnering with a nonprofit entity um, to be able to create the kind of contract for differences, like the kinds of structural and you know, that kind of support in order to drive um, the right demand-side support mechanisms. And you've seen this globally, you know, with hydrogen, there's, uh, there are uh, clean hydrogen auctions in Europe and, you know, in Australia, there's also demand-side support things. So we're learning from a lot of other countries in terms of what is actually effective related to demand-side support. But the whole point is that this is um, a larger... Um, idea of how do you drive demand-side support? How do you create, how do you get more projects invested, right, by de-risking a lot of the barriers as related to these markets that are just are really early? Um, 
across other areas like uh, clean cement, clean steel, sustainable aviation fuel, carbon dioxide removal, chemicals. There's so many critical areas that need more bankable offtake, need more revenue certainty. And so the government is trying to do what we can to uh, create mechanisms to be able to stand these up faster. So that's why we're really looking at that. Right now, we have more money than projects. So we really need more of that private sector uh, project sponsorship. Another example of demand-side support from the DOE, I'm going to go down a a nuclear thread for just a second, but um, many of the advanced reactors that are being aspired to and developed in the United States require a type of fuel that the United States doesn't make. We import it from Russia. yeah, and there's no order book. It, it, nobody's stepping up to provide this fuel because there's, no, there's not a five customers for it. The DOE is actually becoming a customer for HALU, high assay, low enriched uranium, um, and is actually becoming a customer for it to create a market for it and, and so that nobody has to take that risk. That's right. So we have a transmission facilitation program that's similar where we're like the anchor customer um, that will, you know, have that long-term investment and then sell the short-term, right? So for more transmission. I think this is a big difference in the DOE of 10 years ago. That's not the role that the DOE DOE was looking to play 10 years ago. That's right. That's right. Well, I I mean, there... the ability to drive down the cost of solar by 90% in, in 10 years is why we're able to to fight climate change is one of the big reasons why and why renewable energy is more prevalent than new new renewable well, energy. Why solar is the leading new generation yeah. source of new generation. Yeah, and and that had to do with things like um, the investment tax credit. It had right. to do with um, solar rebates at state level, the million solar roofs, net metering, which I'm sure Bernadette talked about. Uh, and those were hard, very hard-fought battles. I, I predict that the, the cost decline in these newer technologies will not be as impressive. That 10 years from now, we will not see... Uh, Electrolyzers you know, at a tenth of the cost. Or, or nuclear at, be cost-competitive. I mean, it's, it, takes, it took a huge um, effort... And it, and it took the ability to, to scale and to reinvest in manufacturing and the, pub, the public markets accessing those. You don't have public markets now that will, will take a company public that doesn't have earnings. I mean, and a lot of these companies did not have earnings when they went public. So the system's very different uh, than, than it was, and, and we need to fix that. But, uh, you know, as much as we want these new technologies to, um, to thrive, we don't want to take attention away from what we know works as well. Right. That's true. I, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I love the pragmatic approach, and frankly, I'm so honored to be on the stage here with you, especially Nancy, Um, and I want to learn from what you know, from what you've lived, Um, and I also want to acknowledge the fact that the DOE is trying to be very holistic in the way that we are um, trying to 
you know, get this market liftoff for over 20 sectors in order to get to net zero, right? Um, and in this particular case, you know, we're, we're de-risking things related to things that I think Wall Street wants to hear, which is, you know, getting community buy-in, strengthening supply chains, workforce development, permitting, you know, offtake de-risking. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing all embedded into everything we're doing. Even our the way that we're evaluating funding opportunities has a huge commercial lens on that too. And yes, you know, reports can only do so much, but it's being informed by people who actually know what the price points for certain technologies are in the market, not what the lab is telling us, right? So it's not as theoretical as a typical report typically would be. And so we're making a lot of effort to try to change the paradigm. And I would say I'm probably in the middle. I, I think that on the one hand, um, solar does work and we need to lean into that more. We need to find ways to drive it faster, deeper, be more ubiquitous. It's something that works. Um, but I think that we also need to be very open-minded about what else could be out there that could be um, as much of a needle mover as solar. And so I love the prediction. I love that you put yourself out there like that. I don't know that I'd be ready to say that will always be the case. Um, and I'm really excited about some of the things that the DOE is doing. Um, another acronym, I, I always call it the OECD, but I think it's the OCED. OCED, yeah. <laughs> the Office, Office for of Cl Clean Energy Demonstration. Thank yeah. you. Um, you know, things like that, because it's, you know, it, we, we have to be thinking with these new technologies about government and private capital working together because it won't be the public markets that fish us out of this right now. We have to think about all the different ways that we can de-risk things. And first-of-a-kind technology is something that most private capital is not ready to take that risk. Right. But you get that up and running, and you know your former employer, Generate Capital, is yeah. in there with the lots of money to finance the product. You know, there's a lot of people who are going to step in when you're on nth of a kind, um, and you know the the end right. facility as opposed to a first of a right. kind. Well, well, I would just, I, I would just remind people at least. Our first fund was a 20, 2004, so we've been doing this for almost 20 years. And we've looked at gazillions of hydrogen deals. I mean, this is not a new thing. I mean, we have a, a tall stack of hydrogen deals. We didn't do any. We decided to go for batteries in electric vehicles, so we invested in Tesla. Would I be here on the stage tonight had I invested in all those hydrogen deals? No. So, I mean, there are winners there. I mean, there, not everything is, is going to make sense and, and pan out. I mean, we had our governor, um, Schwarzenegger, who did huge amounts for climate. He was touting the hydrogen highway. You yeah, remember? I remember. Yeah. There was a Hummer. It was involved yeah, the Hummer. That's right. Exactly. I mean, so is, these are some of these, and, and nuclear, of course, has been around since the middle of the last century. Yeah. So there are there are certainly advances that are interesting and that that we should be funding. Uh, but at, by the same token, uh, you know, oil and gas have had a monopoly for you know over a hundred years, and there are because there are advantages to scale in in energy. So with the benefit of hindsight, you can say solar has a bit of a Moore's law. There's a semiconductor aspect, and we've ridden that semiconductor aspect to the cost we're at now. Same thing with lithium-ion batteries. To an extent, there is a, a bit of a Moore's law. Is that the razor that you say that hydrogen electrolyzers and fuel cells don't have that, that 
Well, point, I, point one x path of getting to cost of well, I, I there will definitely be an improve improvements, and we will see green hydrogen. Most hydrogen is not green mm -hmm. today, so we we need to be careful about our the prospects for it. But certainly, electrolyzers that come down in cost and increase in efficiency will help uh, with with the carbon removal because that's a key technology in that. But you need other benefits. I mean, you need to be able to create raw materials that decarbonize uh, the production production of fertilizer or, or mine or, you know, or used in mining. And those are the kinds of carbon removal technologies that have more of a chance because it's a it's not just storing carbon. It's it's the byproducts that they create are are resulting in carbon negative raw materials for manufacturing. I think that's a really good area to invest in. Okay. Uh, Mona, you've heard some no's. So uh, if you're a hydrogen entrepreneur, this may not be your, your target audience right here. <laughs> um, uh, Mona, what, what are your red flags when, 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 you, when you're looking at your deal flow and there's deals coming in, what do you put kind of quickly in the note? in the note pile. It may not be something that doesn't work, it's just something that you don't want to invest in. Right. Um, so it may be that uh, University of Chicago background, the intellectually curious in me, that I would say that I remain curious about many things. <laughs> um, but that while we remain, for example, nuclear curious, I would say that you, you know, it is notably absent from our portfolio. And I do worry that nuclear is, um, for example, one of those technologies where government needs to move the needle more um, because it just isn't on a time scale that fits a 10-year investment fund, you know, in venture capital. Um, and, you know, there are safety reasons why, um, you know, the, the regulatory body is so slow moving. Um, but it, that just is what it is. Yeah. And so I think, you know, for a while, you know, that's going to just be a hard one for us to look at. Um, I would say another area within climate where we have been curious but have not invested is in the area of agriculture. Um, and, you know, agriculture is so important. There's so much, um, you know, it, it, huge contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, um, in terms of the way that we produce the food that we all enjoy. Um, but, you know, farmers have one, maybe two crops a year. Um, they, you know, we operate, in, they operate in an industry that has very thin margins, lots of players, lots of levels to it that each has very thin margins. It's a very risk-averse group that aren't going to change, you know, how they do business anytime soon or very, very quickly. Well, I, I think there's actually... Uh, progress in ag, and there's also a generational transfer. I mean, the the farms are being passed on to a generation that's grown up yeah, understanding climate change and and technology a little bit. More. Yeah, and they have their their laptops out in the field. So the ability and Argonne Labs has said that you, we can decarbonize ag over the next 15 years by 70 percent, which is pretty much the same as we're doing in transportation, and it has to do with uh, monetizing uh, practices that produce less carbon, cover crops biopesticides, uh, tillage, um, you, can, you can quantify, and, and the company you mentioned, FBN, does this with ADM and the, the USDA, quantify how much 
you're reducing the carbon load of your crop and then get paid for that. ADM wants to be green and will pay you more to, to uh, buy corn that was produce less carbon. Uh, you can get electric vehicles on the farm. You, you, there's now precision spraying of, of, of pesticides yep, yep. so that you use 80% less. I mean, it's really an existential threat for the pesticide industry when these new uh, spraying arms... So are we only 20% of what you've been selling? Yeah, sure, and it'll sure. probably be 10%. Uh, five years from now. But it's really tough because a lot of the farmers listen to the agronomists who are often on the payroll of the chemical companies mm -hmm. that these new startups are going to displace. It, there's a lot of friction well, there. But ADM is the largest grain buyer on the planet. Yep. And they are, in the last uh, six months with FBN, they paid $8 million to farmers who grew their, their, their crops with less carbon. And it was just a pilot. And so a pilot of that size is going to, you know, grow. And the, as farmers come onto that, that platform, they're going to get all kinds of benefits and improve those margins, which have been historically very, very, very slim. Um, I, I used to live in the Bay Area. I don't live around here anymore. I live in Monterey County. And I, I live amongst farmland. I live amongst thousands of acres of strawberries and the, basically the salad bowl of the nation, um, that still looks like um, 18th century, uh, could be an impressionistic painting of people picking stuff in a field. Um, so there's lots of room for improvement despite the... Well, but specialty crops like strawberries um, versus row crops of the heartland, the margins are so much higher on strawberries mm -hmm. that you don't mm -hmm. have some of the imperatives to... Uh, reduce labor costs and things. I mean, it's coming, but the the the, the thin margins of the of, uh, of row crops of wheat, wheat of corn yeah. of yeah. sort of the the breadbasket of the world um, really requires much more automation and shaving every single penny off the cost okay. that you can't. Okay. Um, this is recency bias, and although we've agreed that reports are ineffective. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. I just said it. it's reports plus. So you have a report on um, a, a, an, interesting, a, an interesting technology and a market and application that needs to happen. And although we, we talked about it 15 minutes ago, which is why I remember it, um, it it's, it's a more of an adaptive than a mitigation type of of technology. So, talk a little bit about. Uh, you, you also said adapt, adaption was not really what you wanted to invest in, but this might. So, uh, it's an interesting yeah. topic. Tell us about it. Well, um, sure. As I mentioned, we started a long time ago, and we, we didn't want to do adaptation at all, resilience. We thought, well, let's just invest in more EVs, more solar. Uh, batteries will fix this problem and we won't have to invest in adaptation. Well, somewhere along the way, we realized, sadly, that uh, that wasn't going to happen. And, and we do feel that building for resilience, uh, investing in adaptation is not optional. I mean, we have to replant trees. We have to uh, revive uh, natural climate solutions. Uh, and we need to address the, the carnage of of for example, wildfires. Wildfires 
are, of course, a public health hazard. They destroy natural habitat and bi biodiversity. We all know... Um, and the, they undo the effort, the efforts yeah, of gigawatts of renewal. They're, they're a carbon... Uh, nightmare. They, yeah, just a nightmare. The, the fires in Canada this summer generated more carbon than the entire industrial profile of Canada. And the fires of 2020 in our state wiped out 15 years of, of progress. And if wildfires were a country, they'd be ranked number four behind China, U.S., and India in terms of carbon emissions. So this notion that we don't do anything about it or that we use 20th century tools, we use helicopters left over from the Vietnam War to fight our fires, which is what some states do. I mean, it's just insanity. And so we are able to develop technologies that, uh, in terms of sensing where fires are, the uh, bringing AI and cameras you and sensors. Drone, drones, you said. Right. Uh, unmanned helicopters that can drop, um, drop fire retardant uh, in minutes as opposed to hours. The Moore Foundation in San Mateo County, where you used to live, which experienced a, a very major fire a few years ago, they did a study showing that for every 15 minutes that you you get to a fire 15 minutes earlier, you save billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. If 15, you, 15 minutes? Yeah. And so imagine if you get there in 15 minutes when, when a fire is small, and there's a company uh, in Alameda that's doing that called Rain that, that, that we're both invested in, working with, um, of, all, of all things, the uh, largest military uh, companies, because when you think about um, a target in warfare, we're increasingly used, we're not putting humans in the line of fire as much as we used to. We're using drones and automated solutions because we're able to sense where the target is and, and as it changes, go after it. That's exactly what we have to do in wildfires. So rethinking and using technology um, can can prevent the loss of life, prevent the damage to our planet, but also be a huge carbon improvement technology. And that's, that's an area that no one has really thought about until recently. In our last few minutes here, um, one, I want to ask the same question that Jeff asked is, what haven't we covered? What would you like, what's the last point you'd like to make? And Elaine, what, what would you tell entrepreneurs? You said there's more money than, than uh, there's more, what did you say? <laughs> I said there's more money than projects. There's more money. Um, I mean, the yes, and there's a lot of funding opportunities, and um, it's really hard to navigate the DOE website. I get it. Um, and so, you know, I am happy to be able to field questions and things like that, but I think, you know, there are... Uh, there are opportunities for everyone. So if you're not an entrepreneur, I know a lot of people think, okay, well, we're looking at TRL 6 or later. Um, but even if you're not eligible for some of the funding opportunities, a lot of these are competitive grants, so that's free money, tax credits, obviously loans from that loan programs office. Um, you know, they do have their criteria. But even if you're not necessarily eligible, maybe your state is or your utility is or your manufacturers that you partner with are, it will all trickle toward our industries. And so it's really important that people take advantage of all of these incentives that are currently in play because it's a historic amount. 
um, you know, just in the next six months or so, it's almost, it's more than like 43 billion. Um, that's just right now. I mean, we've already deployed 67 billion. So there's a ton, and that's not even including the loan gear, uh, program. So um, the $400 you know, billion dollar loan. The $400 billion loan dollar loan programs office. That's different, obviously. That's loans. And their scale is a little different to lead to, and you do pay those back. But the point here is that in order to get to the $300 billion plus per year of private sector investment, we need to be creating more projects and getting more demand. And um, this requires not just VC and PE, but also, you know, the lower cost of capital, large institutional investors who are working at that $100 billion plus scale. You know, we need to de-risk as much as possible. So the government is really working hard to try to make sure that the private sector can become that force multiplier that it needs to be, right? We say, um, you know, the clean energy transition is private sector-led and government-enabled. So, you know, we can't do this alone. We really are looking for partners and allies. Mona, some last words? Yeah, no, I, mean, I think one of the things we talked about before that we didn't really talk about so much now is you, you asked me um, if we had a, you know, we would ever entertain, you know, portfolio company, encourage a portfolio company to try to get some of that money, et cetera. And I said, oh my God, of course we would. <laughs> it's non-dilutive funding. Why wouldn't we do that? Um, but, you know, one of the things that I would say is historically, um, government has always put their hand on the scale um, in different ways to get technology going. Um, we are in Silicon Valley and the semiconductor industry for which it is named was enabled by the US government right. and the investments that were made um, at places like Stanford, et cetera, and, and, and building up that industry. Um, and so for that to continue today makes tons of sense to me. Um, and I think it's really, what I would encourage entrepreneurs to do is think about what's the right capital for where I am on the risk scale? Um, what are the different sources? Um, because I think what we're definitely still seeing sometimes is entrepreneurs you know, particularly in the post-2021 boom, um, you know, raised what they could, weren't conscious enough about what are the milestones? How am I going to de-risk this? Being really conscious about what you can de-risk and what kind of capital is available to de-risk at every stage is really important. But um, yeah. lean into those subsidies. Um, I, I mean, we're all so supportive of what the government is doing in terms of bringing uh, more capital to bear and non-dilutive capital is, is always welcome. I think that you know, because we're in such a difficult market environment that uh, we need to balance sort of the, the availability of, you know, billions of dollars to, to help with our transition with the, the harsh reality that the markets... Um, you know, they want you to be very cash efficient. They want you to have um, not, you know, when Tesla went public in 2010, you know, the Model S didn't come out till 2012. I mean, there were, there were no real cars there. That, that wouldn't happen today. I mean, the, the public markets, no matter how many billions of dollars you've gotten from wherever, if you don't have revenues and you don't have profits or the ability to generate profits in the near term, you're not going to be able to access what, what are the most efficient sources of capital, which are the, the public markets. So there's a huge reset that's happened and uh, we need, we're just learning how to, to mesh 
the largesse of the government period with the very, very um, Spartan public markets. That's all for this week. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Latitude Media and Canary Media. You can watch the panels from this Canary Live on YouTube, and you'll also see uh, the back catalog of Canary Live events as well. And go check out Latitude Media's new site, latitudemedia.com. See what we're uh, reporting over there. And don't forget, if you're in New York and you're hearing this before October 19th, or if you're just around the New York area and you can get to Manhattan, go get your ticket for Transition-AI. We've got an awesome event planned for you and a really high-quality group of people who are going to be there. And of course, a big thanks to our investor, Prelude Ventures. Prelude invests across a wide range of climate asset classes. That's materials, advanced energy, food, ag, transportation, advanced materials, manufacturing, and advanced computing. And go over... And hook us up with a rating on Apple or Spotify. It's a big help. And uh, if you want to share this with a friend or colleague, that's also a big help too. So pop them a link. And if they're not listening to this podcast already, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.